Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Sherry, you did the best you could, but you can't change this family. Neither can I. From now on, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the ride. But haven't I taught you people anything? Nope. 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 So you like it this way? Indubitably. Around the house, I never lift a finger. As a husband and father, I'm subpar. I'd rather drink a beer than with father of the year. I'm happy with things the way they are. I'm getting used to never getting noticed. I'm stuck here till I can steal a car. The house is still a mess, and I'm going ball from stress. But we're happy just the way we are. They're not perfect, but the Lord says love thy neighbor. Dot up Flanders. Oakley, doakley, do. Don't think it's sour grapes, but you're all a bunch of beets. And so I must be leaving you. Goodbye, Sherry Bobbins. Thanks for everything. So long, Superman. Goodbye, Superman. Hey, well, we're, we're kicking something off. It's just a, a one-off. I wanted to revisit an idea that we looked at a few years ago, and so I thought this was an appropriate uh, starting point. You know, the, the Simpsons, I, I admittedly am not the biggest Simpsons fan at, really at all. I'm not sure I've watched an entire Simpsons episode, which doesn't say anything about you if you like the Simpsons. Uh, it's just my personal preference. But I do know that the Simpsons uh, have excelled. They've been on television for decades now because they've excelled at this arena of satire, of, of poking fun at culture, poking fun at certain ideas. And, and what you find here in that video is poking fun at the easy, breezy, sugar-coated transformation that we associate with Mary Poppins, right? She's practically perfect in every way, and, and things just seem to come so easily. And so here you have The Simpsons saying, yeah, that's nice, but your sugar-coated transformation won't work on us because we don't really want to change. And with that in mind, again, I wanted to revisit this idea of spiritual urban legends and look at one that they mentioned there uh, in that video. As a reminder, we know, right, urban legends, they, these are these ideas that show up in our culture, ways of, of thinking about certain things that we kind of know probably aren't true, but there's enough truth that we think, well, just maybe that, that might be right. I was reading again about some urban legends. I'd never heard of this one. Evidently, there's the 999 phone charging urban legend. Uh, you guys know about this? There's, there's some who would, this got around that if you called the fire or police uh, and then hung up, dialing 999, and you hung up, it would charge your phone. I, I've never heard of this, but, but there were people, I guess, trying to do this. It sounds very inefficient when it comes to the use of our fire and police time, but there were some that thought that might be a thing. There's, there's creature urban legends, right? The chupacabra, this idea of some 
kind of goat attacking animal that looks sort of like a coyote but not quite and and everybody's got these identifiers of the chupacabra there's urban legends like celebrity deaths uh, one that was going around years ago was that will ferrell the comedian had died in a paragliding accident but these are the, probably some of the most common urban legends. There was also one going way back to the Beatles that Paul McCartney secretly died in 1966 and was replaced by a body double for all the many years of the, the Beatles' success afterwards. Um, and that made its way around for a long time. Here's my favorite urban legend. and It go, has a picture that goes with it. It has to do with Mr. Rogers. That Mr. Rogers was a military sniper and he hid tattoos under his sweaters, right? That it was something like this. He had all these confirmed kills and all of that. Okay, again, urban legend. This is not true. He was in the military, right? But this, he was not a military sniper. And, and as far as we know, he didn't have any tattoos underneath the sweaters or the, the cool pump or, you know, like loafers. Um, but these kinds of things make our way around in culture. And, and the same can be true when it comes to uh, spiritual ideas. And when we talk about spiritual urban legends, these are beliefs that sound something like truth. They, they sound close to something that we maybe should believe and, and take to heart. Um, but in their proper popular expressions, if, if we consider what there was really meant and the way they, they show up popularly, what we find is that they will actually lead us astray. And we, we looked at a number of these again a few years ago, but I wanted to revisit one in particular. And today look at this idea of, uh, of the urban legend of that's just how I am or that's just the way that I am. And this shows up in a number of ways. But like most spiritual urban legends, there's a nugget of truth that gets distorted when we, when we talk about this, when we use this to describe ourselves. There, there is a nugget of truth, and I think it's a, a, a nugget of truth that the Simpsons actually modeled very well. You see, if we, we think about it, there is a need for a certain kind of self-acceptance. Sometimes when people are saying this, well, that's just the way I am, it, it's because there is a certain kind of self-acceptance that they're expressing that is correct. In, in biblical terms, we're told to do this, to uh, have a sane assessment of our abilities. That's what it says in Romans 12, that we are to have a sane assessment of, of who we are and how God's made us and how he's gifted us and, and, and some of the abilities that we have, right? I mean, I'm six foot four, over 200 pounds. It's not likely I was ever going to be a jockey, okay? I mean, there's just some things that, that aren't going to, to probably pop up, and we can have a sane assessment of how we are and make some decisions based on our abilities and preferences and, and, and kind of lock into some of those things. No doubt. That is correct. And so to that degree, when the Simpsons are singing about, you know, we're, we're happy just the way they are, we are, um, they, they've locked onto something that, that could sound good. But there's a problem is that often, though, more often, when we use this kind of language, when we talk about uh, just expressing ourselves, as, well, that's just the way I am, we, we come across the damaging aspect of this legend. And it's really modeled as well by the Simpsons. And it happens on two occasions. One, we, we tend to say this in one of two occasions, either when we don't want to change, when we're just locked into something that probably should change, but we just don't want it to change, then our response can be, well, that's just how I am. Don't talk to me about change. I, I, this is just how I am. Or when we come across something that we would agree probably needs to change, but we don't think there is really any ability, any capacity to change, then again we resign ourselves to, well, that's just how I am. 
And this idea, this saying, that's just how I am, and that's just the way I am, it actually reflects a, a larger question for all of us, which is, who are we? And who should we be? Right? We have to all answer these questions. And our, our friends and the, the people we care about have to answer these questions. Our kids have to answer these questions. And, and we know it, it's a problem if you're a celebrity and you go around reading the tabloids, right? either in the supermarket or now they just come to you through social media and all kinds of things. It, if you identify yourself, if you, if you craft your, your persona around the tabloids, we know that is not a healthy way to live. But we're no different. We have to be careful of how we decide who we really are and who we are to be. Um, and that's just how I am uh, appears in our lives, and it, it tends to pop up in some way or another. You say, well, I've never said that exactly. Well, maybe not. But it does show up in our lives as a reasonable excuse because I think for, for two reasons. We, we share two common problems, every single one of us. Two common problems. And the first one is this. We, we let the wrong person tell us how I am. Okay, we, we all let the wrong person tell us how I am. You say, well, this is just how I am. Part of that is because of who has told us how we are. I, I know my mom grew up hearing that girls were no good at math. I don't know if this was a, just a popular idea back you know, as she was growing up in the, the 50s to 60s. Um, but that was the message that she got. Girls are no good at math. And she believed that for many, many years. And then she went back to school when I was in high school, and she got a nursing degree. And she did the math that was required to do chemistry and pharmacology. Right? She, she, she broke out of that idea that, that that's all she could do. She had had this wrong impression that was defining how she was. And the same is true. Maybe you grew up in a home where you were told that you were good for nothing. And you start to believe that message coming through. Or maybe you go to work every day and you have a boss who only speaks of your deficiencies. And you begin to see yourself only through this lens of your deficiencies. And you say, well, that's how I am. It's just how I am. I'm just deficient. I just can't do it right. You begin to believe that press. Or maybe... As you grow up or as you went through some formative experiences, you were pumped so full of praise that, that you, you think highly of yourself, but you also see life as this competition. And so you're constantly having to, in everything you do, go out and prove once again that you were worthy of all the praise that you received. And it starts to skew, again, how you view yourself and how you operate in the world. And the, the reality is that all of these distorted messages, in whatever way they come, and you can come up with your own, but all of these distorted messages, they find their origin in humanity's beginnings. Okay, so I want to take us back to Genesis, very early in the book of Genesis, which, which does, among other things, describe the beginnings of humanity, the beginnings of our time on this planet and God's creation. And I want you to hear what's happened, okay? So just remind us of, of what's gone on so far is that God creates Everything. And, and then at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates humanity. And he says, you know, this was good before, but now I've created humans and I've put them in this special place, it really a, a, a kind of a, a temple of this garden. It's this place where I will dwell with them. And this, this went from good to very good. And, and so we have our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, living in paradise living in this, this perfect kind of existence with their creator. 
And then things go wrong. And I want us to pick up where things go wrong with this temptation. Genesis chapter 3 says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so, again, we, we can pick this apart. There's a lot happening here, but just basic, right? We, we understand what's just going on here is God gave his people instructions, and here comes this tempter. It's described as a serpent. This tempter shows up, and, and, and tries to cast doubt on the instruction that God had given and the reasons for that instruction. And in casting doubt on that, is, is trying to convince Eve, in this case, and Adam, who's likely close, that what God intends is, is not actually good for them. And, and so what ends up happening is they, they, they bite, literally. They, they take the temptation and, and they eat of that tree of which God said, not to eat. And the result is disastrous. In fact, we see the result summed up very well just a few verses later in, in verse 11. God comes and he, he meets with, he comes to find Adam and Eve who have now hidden themselves. And this is what he says in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the true tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Okay, so this is what's happened. is, is they, they realize something about themselves that before was not a problem, but now they think is a problem. They have real guilt. They've broken God's command. God is the king of the universe. He's laid things out, and when they violate that, they are actually guilty. But then guilt doesn't stop there. Now, as a result of that guilt, they find themselves in this place of shame, and so they're trying to hide themselves, to cover themselves. There's this, this now this barrier that has, has been erected between them and God. And this is what we call the fall of humanity. This is disastrous for all of us. We all find ourselves in this same kind of rebellion, having defied our Creator, and then again, building up these walls, these things, these, these strategies to try to escape the guilt and the shame. See, our first parent's story is really the story of us all. And so this is why <clears throat> these strategies appear. And one of those strategies is to say things like, well, that's just how I am. It's a strategy intended to help pull us out of that shame, to help us feel like we can, we can avoid the shame that comes as a result of our guilt. And so, but notice, right, they were told, you're naked. There, were, there was this result of that temptation. They were told the wrong thing about who they were, and again, the same is true of us, but it doesn't stop there, because not only do we all let the wrong person tell us how I am, we also have that same person telling us that we can never change. And in fact, that same person leads us on a path to change that leads to nowhere. I said never change, but that's not exactly true, because there is some sense that maybe we could change. We're actually given some sort of hope that we could change, what we find is that the path to change that we're promised actually goes nowhere. Once you hear this again, verse 5, this is the, the serpent speaking. He says, 
God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now think about that. This is actually a promise in certain ways of change. Guys, look, you've been denied something. You're being held out on. But if you'll just violate that thing that God said to do, what you'll find is a change that will be better than you can imagine. Your eyes will be opened. It says that she saw the, the tree, and it was, it was just as God had described it. Just as earlier, it was described as good for, it was good to see. You could look at it, it was a beautiful tree. It, was, it, was, it looked good for eating. I mean, you could look and go, oh, hey, there's fruit on that tree. But now there was this other thing. It was, it was good to make one wise. He said, oh, there's this change promise. I, I can grow wiser. My eyes will be open. I'll know something I didn't know before. So there's a certain kind of change that's promised here. What we actually discover is that path to change leads nowhere. It takes you nowhere that you would want to go. And here's how the results are described much later. Ephesians chapter 2. Excuse me, let me flip over there. But Ephesians chapter 2. This is how the the result of that fall is described. Verses 1 through 3. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. That's the same person as the serpent. The spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. That's the result. That's what happens. Is, Is that guilt and then the shame, and, and we don't just sort of, you know, like just sort of jump into it. No, we jump in full-footed, all our whole selves, and this just spins out over humanity's history. And none of us are untouched by it. What we're actually described as dead in our trespasses, dead in our violation of God's ways. And so there's this problem, but, but that's where we were led. And that's where we continue to be led as we listen to that same voice telling us, look, you can change, but not really. I'll promise you something better, but it won't actually do anything to make anything better. See, Satan, this this ancient and current tempter, enemy, accuser, he leads this world system that appeals to our flesh so that we will do his bidding. He's not personally that concerned with you, but he's got minions, he's got demons who are concerned with with just making life more frustrating and difficult for humanity in order to rob God of his glory. You say, oh, that's, we're now in this whole other area. Well, okay. Never said Christians don't believe some weird things. That's what we do. But that's what's going on. And so as a result, we, we receive this mixed message. On the one hand, we're told you need to change. And there's kind of this adapt or die sort of mentality. But it the other, on the other hand, we're also told you can't really change. You can try, but you can't really change. This is just a path that leads to nowhere, and, and it's what I would call hamster wheel hopelessness, right? I mean, th- this is the way this needs, it ends up working, and sometimes it even works like this in Christian circles, is this sense of like, well, I just got to jump on the hamster wheel, and if I'll just keep pedaling fast enough, eventually maybe I'll break out of this thing, and it will take me somewhere, but it doesn't. And so we're just left running, running, running with no real hope to go anywhere. 
And I was, I was thinking about this this week, and thinking about how this shows up, I, I realized, you know, this is cancel culture. This is exactly what's gone on in our world, in the la- I mean, especially in the last, you know, year to a couple years, but we can go farther back than that. But, but you think about what happens with, with cancel culture. There's, there's this idea that you should be better. There's the messages, you should be better. You should have some things figure out, figured out. And you better be doing what you need to do to have all those things figured out that somebody, we don't really know who, but somebody has decided you should know. And if you don't, then we will punish you. And we'll punish you severely. Now, we'll tell you that you need to change, that you should be educated, because education, that is the ultimate savior. If you just had more education, everything would be better. But the reality is, if I violate things, if I break the, the edicts that have been laid out, then it's not, oh, hey, let's help you. Let's help you understand something. It's, nope, now you're done. Well, we're going to eviscerate you. We're going to destroy you. you. You didn't have all of life figured out the way we thought you should have at 14 years old? Well, too bad. Now that you're 34, we're going to destroy your life. And I get there's different, this, this happens on a spectrum, but it's very indicative of just the way the world works apart from God in general. It's, again, this idea of, well, you need to change, but any attempts to really change, you, you can't. You might want to have hope. We'll tell you you should have hope, but anytime you try to actually break out of that and maybe even identify that, that there's some real idea of, of change, of how the world works, right? That we might identify something like sin. Well, all of a sudden, well, now you're getting crazy. You see, it, it, it's this call constantly to be better with no hope that there's actually a way forward. God has something different to say. Something very different to say. And, and this is, but because of that kind of world, that's just how I am. Again, it becomes this strategy that is very appealing. But God does something different. He speaks into our problems, and he tells us a different story. God speaks into this problem, and he tells us a different story. Despite the native rebellion in each of us, one of the things he tells us, part of the story is, there is something wonderful about how I am. There's something wonderful about how I am, how you are. Psalm 139, 13 to 16 we're told this. I mean, this is, this is the author writing about what he understands of, of who God has made him to be. And he says this, and it's true of all of us. It was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. This is, this is poetry. It's an expression of this reality. Human life is valuable. But what's more is that human lives are valuable. Your life is valuable, infinitely valuable. Not simply because of how you are, of how you perform, how you do certain things, but because of who created you. 
You are wonderfully made. There is something wonderful about how I am. And yet, as the story continues, we also have to realize that something does need to change. Something does need to change. God speaks. He tells us this story. Yes, there's something wonderful about you, but something needs to change. Years ago, I read an article of a a father whose six-year-old son, as they were sitting down at the table, asked a question about his baby sister who had been born with Down syndrome. And the question was this. Will Phoebe, as they were sitting down to eat, will Phoebe have Down syndrome in heaven? Parents, think about you're sitting down at dinner ready to cut into your meal, and that's the question you're dealing with. It's a dangerous question. It's a wise question out of a six-year-old. It's a dangerous question to answer, right? Because there's two impulses. The first impulse is this. Well, of course not. Of course not. I mean, this is this thing that, of course we don't want that to be true in heaven, but be careful. Because Phoebe's life is valuable, even with Down syndrome. So you you jump too quick. Of course not. You, You run the risk of diminishing the value of that little girl's life. And there are millions around the world who do that every day because they choose to abort babies who are born, who who they know will have Down syndrome. And it's an egregious act against the holy God who's created that little life. So you have to be careful. On the other hand, there's the reaction to say, well, of course, she's wonderful just how she is. Well, that's also, there's danger there. She is wonderful. I'm sure now, this was many years ago, I'm sure now Phoebe is a beautiful, bright in her own way little girl. But there's a danger of minimizing the reality of sin on each of us. See, that rebellion that we read about doesn't just have an impact in terms of of how we think or how we respond to God. It has physical ramifications. Our world is broken in a lot of ways as a result. And so you have to be careful here that we don't, don't diminish The fact that God is, that there is something that needs to be repaired. And it has far-reaching effects. The reality is it's possible to want something to be different while still appreciating what is. And and countless of us have done things, have been a part of things, where we look and we go, objectively, I know that's not what I should have done. And yet I get to the other side of it and I can look and go, and yet something good came out of it. And so was that thing that I did good? No. But there was still good. And most of us, that happens and we just take it for granted and we think, well, whew, dodged one there. Instead of stopping and realizing, wait, there is a holy, gracious, merciful God who's allowed for not all of our boneheadedness to bear out. And so we have to be careful here. Understand this as you think. I mean, this is a broad question, I know, but I I know personally the reality of this. There there are great benefits that have come with my hand being like this, but I will tell you, okay, having gotten dressed this morning, I look forward to however clothes work in heaven, rolling up my sleeves being a whole lot easier, okay? I I look forward to that. So we we just have to understand there's a tension here. But something does need to change. And far sadder than the brokenness of our bodies or the miscues of our mouths is the death 
of our souls. That's the saddest thing. And so it's into that sadness that Jesus steps, speaking truth we wish wasn't needed, but truth that none of us can avoid. He says this to a man who comes to visit him. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the change that's being described, and it's not an easy change. We're talking about being reborn. It's that dramatic, that, that important, that drastic, the kind of change that has to take place. Something needs to change. But here's the other thing. Is that not only does something need to change, it actually can. This is the great hope. This is where the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done separates from all the messages of false hope and transformation that we are fed in all these other ways. It actually can take place. Romans 5, 9 describes this in, in a certain way. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Here's the gospel. One way to say it. We are guilty. We're guilty. We, just like Adam and Eve, we're guilty of rebellion, and we deserve wrath. We deserve, we have violated a holy and righteous God, and we deserve wrath. But in Jesus, we're offered new life. God himself looks at our wrath problem and says, I, I will be just, I will do what I will do, because it is right and good, but I will also help you where you find yourself on the other side of me, I myself will go and bear that wrath for you. See, we hear that, and it's just like, yeah, what, it's just mind-blowing, right? I mean, I, you deserve this, I, but I'm going to step in, and I will take it for you. This is the hope that we have. We're given entry into a kingdom where everyone is royalty. Here's an even more detailed description. We saw the front side of that salvation. Here's or, you know, what comes before, but here's what comes after. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You and I, we are totally dependent. We are dead, unable to contribute anything, and God comes to us. When it comes to our salvation, we, we, there's nothing we can do. I'm, I'm dead. My soul is dead as a result of my rebellion. Nothing I can do, and God comes to us. He saves us. He recreates us. The words here, he, he does this like a poem. And, it, and like a poem, when he does this work of salvation, it takes a while to understand its full beauty. But God intends to do something wonderful with your life. And only he can see the full beauty of what he's doing. But he promises that as we walk in his ways, we will know who we really are. And he will lead us to where we really should go and to what we really should and who we should be. But then there's this other problem. 
That ancient enemy isn't content to leave us alone. See, just as we start to get traction, to make real progress, we, we find it more difficult than we imagine. We think, oh, I'm, okay, this sounds good. Yeah, I want real change. I want off the hamster wheel. I want, and it's just hard. Almost so hard that we feel like, oh, there it is again. I'm just, is this just this wheel? Like I'm supposed to do this and do that? And, and really, that's that ancient enemy coming back, trying to divert us from what's true. See, we, we get a whiff of another world we just start to get a smell for, for what can be of a better way. And we start calling things sin, and we begin to pursue old-fashioned ideas like holiness, and Satan then pulls a string on a world that screams at us. I mean, the, the screaming at us, how dare you? You don't need to change. You, you, you don't need, that's just how you are. Love it. Embrace it. Don't hope for anything else. God just wants to cramp your style. He knows your eyes will be opened. He doesn't want that. He wants to keep things from you. This is the the message that gets whispered to us. Besides, you can't really change even if you wanted to. And that same ancient serpent just hissing. That's just how you are. And so we've been moving on that path that actually goes somewhere, and we we start to just get tired. We start to just let things slip. We start to think, oh, you know, those things that people helped me understand were so important, they're ah, just, it's not that big a deal. Just a day here, a week there, a month there, a, a few years from now, I'll get back to it. But what's actually happening is we're, we're just buying back into this lie. And that path that we we start down, again, it takes us nowhere. Jesus offers us something better. In Jesus, we have the power to be different. We have the power to be different. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. See, we are dead. But Jesus comes and says, no, I'm going to bring you into my death with me so that then I'm going to bring you into my new resurrected life as well. He's saying you can walk in newness of life. Colossians 3, 9 through 10, with this specific implication, tells us do not lie to one another since you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. So, I mean, it's just assumed. You're in Christ. You're going to grow. You're going to change. This is what God is doing. Just jump on. And keep running with him. Keep walking in his ways. And you're going to see this, this movement, this, this change taking place. And so what does this different look like? Just a, a few ideas. I mean, we could talk forever about this, but just a few ideas to remind us is in closing so we think about, we do have the power to be different. What does different look like? Well, one, different looks like living according to the standard you expect of others. Living according to the standard you expect of others. That's the essence of the golden rule. Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Sometimes people ask, well, well what about people who don't know certain things? But here's the problem. If all God did was judge us, By the standard that we expect of others, we're still all guilty. We violate his standard, but we violate our own standard all the time. 
Because we have expectations for how we should be treated, and we don't even treat others that way. That's enough. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 when I come, I'm going to transform you, and, and now we're going to live a different way. And in my kingdom, the way we, we live is we live according to this higher standard, but now because you've received the way I've treated you, now you go and you treat others with that same standard. Different also looks like learning to be open and honest. First John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And this is, I made a joke this morning, talked to somebody, and asked, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm actually good, not just, you know, it's church morning good. Right? Because we know what that is. The other day, I was on a call with, with a friend, and I said, you know, we were exchanging those kinds of pleasantries. How are you doing? And he said, good, and then he paused. He said, and I thought he was pausing because he was going to go, oh, no, actually, I'm really bad. He said, no, actually, like something really great just happened. And he, he proceeded to tell me this really great thing, but he was going to blow up past that. I said, oh, that's awesome. Like, great, I can rejoice with you. This is, this is cool. You say, man, I, I don't have close friends. I don't, I mean, there's people who really know. The only way this happens, guys, is we open our lives to one another. And that's not easy. It doesn't happen immediately. But as we do this, as we walk in the light, as we're open and we're honest with people, and it doesn't mean we're the same open and honest with every single person, but as we do this, we, God is working in us. He's making us. He's changing us. He's growing us. I learned something when that friend said, hey, here's something really good that happened. And it, you know, in the best way, it kind of got me thinking a different way. Reminded me, oh yeah, I need to, I need to do that when that pops up. Which leads to the third thing, welcome correct, correction. We need each other. Part of the way God intends to change you is through the input of other people in your life. Through him working in them and teaching them and them then being able to pass along what they've learned or what they're learning to you. Welcome correction. Hebrews 3.13, encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Again, God's working. He's changing us. But there is this, this danger that we get hardened in those old ways of living. We get deceived. We need each other. Somebody's correcting you Generally, I mean, sometimes we're just perturbed and we, you know, we all act that way. But, but generally, if somebody's giving you input, correction, and, and it could be easy to take correction or harder to take correction, the goal of that is to protect you. Now, again, it may be clumsy, it may be ham-fisted in the way it's delivered. I get that. But, but generally, what, what's people's hope? It's, well, I want something for you. Good. And they may need to learn something in the way they do that, but, but we, we need each other. We need the correction that comes from other believers helping us understand how to walk with our king. And then finally, patiently endure. Different looks like patiently enduring. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is how God grows us. This is how he changes us as he takes us through hard things. And he says, I'll be with you. Sometimes, I mean, there's any number of hard things he's taken us around that we've avoided, we don't even notice. Or if we do notice, we barely acknowledge. 
but he does take us through hard things, and he promises to be with us, and he promises that as we go through those things, as we trust him, he's actually changing us. He's actually, it's part of him writing that story, breaking down that ancient false story, and taking us to this greater, better place. So with these things in mind, I want to just lay a little pebble in your shoe here and ask you, it's, it's July, middle of July, come late August into September, you're going to start hearing again, we're going to start getting back to regular Grove groups taking place. And that's not because it's the end-all, be-all, but it's because it's just a strategy, it's just a way, a way that we choose to say, we need each other, and we need to prioritize being with one another such that Because this is how God wants to work to change us, to grow us. This is how we get to practice doing these things, living according to the standard you expect of others, learning to be open and honest, welcoming correction, patiently enduring. God intends for us to do this together. And so I just want to ask you, would you take time this week to begin to think about your calendar, to think about your priorities, your commitments, and figuring out what is it going to take for you to be committed and involved with other people around the grove. Guys, we spent a long time just pulling out every stop, trying to figure out some way to do that, and and again, I can be the first to tell you, we probably didn't do it the best. But we need each other. And, and, And what we will do as a church moving forward is be a people who are going to make an effort to be in each other's lives, to help each other, to spur one another on. And you say, I can't do that right now. Okay, but we're not going to stop and wait until you're ready. What we're going to do is say, we're going to continue to do this, and there's going to be a spot for you when you're ready. But we're going to keep moving. And we have to acknowledge that. Say, man, I I like the Grove. I want to be a part of things. Great, that's good. I want you to, to want that. But at some point, and this happens for me, it happens for every single one of us, the only way that we're actually committed to one another is that we have to let go of something else in order to grab on to something that we say we want. That's good. You guys know, I mean, I got four kids that are all about to be, or either are, or are about to be teenagers. Life, there's plenty going on at my house. I mean, I drove, driven, driving home yesterday from going, oh yeah, like I'm, there's lots going on, and it's good stuff, and I enjoy it but I don't lack for things to do. We start planning stuff. Like, I have to start cutting, okay, this can't happen because for us to really make this go, like, I have to let go of things. I'm no different. I just want you to begin to pray, think, consider. What would it take for you to be a part of this community in the way that God intends for us to do that? And and as we do that, just remind you, how you are is wonderful but also sinful. And so how you are must change. You and I are are a work in progress, but in Christ, we know how we turn out. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you imagine what it would look like for everyday people like you and I to take seriously God's true story instead of the false story that we are so often fed. You may, like the Simpsons, be happy just the way you are. I acknowledge that. We're not here to twist arms. That accomplishes nothing but breaking people. 
But I do want to invite you to, to keep coming around and considering a different way. Or maybe you know somebody that falls in that category. I put out a new resource there at the, the info center that's not labeled, but it's the info center. Um, it'll be labeled eventually. Uh, it's called Alive. Uh, I have one. Here we go. It's called Alive, a cold case approach to the resurrection. Cold case investigator, famous guy, was an atheist, J. Warner Wallace, became a Christ follower because he just said, I'm going to approach this the way I would, a, the, the resurrection the way I would a cold case, murder case. And as he did that, with honesty, he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and, and that's a whole other story. But I invite you to read it. Or maybe you know somebody that would, be, that would be a help to. There's a number of them out there. Feel free to take one. Pass it along. But I want to invite you to keep coming around and considering a different way. But if the thought of real, lasting chains, change appeals to you in the least, I want you to know the gift of God is that we can debunk the legend of that's just how I am. In Jesus, you and I have the power to be different. So let's pray. Father, yours is the opinion that matters. There is coming a day when every one of us will bow the knee to you and acknowledge the truthfulness of your ways. But only some will recognize your goodness while others will stay in their rebellion, desiring freedom, but not you. And so for those who are here and have yet to bow the knee and transfer their trust to you, I pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit would awaken them to faith and that today would be the day of their salvation and the beginning of a new life. And for those who know that they were once dead in their sin but have made alive by the Spirit, I pray that you would empower and embolden them to stand against the lies that diminish our love and loyalty for you. And for every person here, my hope is that you would receive the honor that you are due. Thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day.